Well, good morning. It's time to begin, but oh, there is the camera person. I, I was a newscaster before I became a lawyer, and I'm always looking for the light on the camera. So it's time to begin. Our topic this morning is end time events and prophecy. We're going to be talking about three major developments in world events, but we are going to discover this morning that you can't go very far in equating world events to prophecy without finding that you're drawn into events within the church. The two almost seem to come together like railroad uh, tracks in the distance. The further you go, the closer they get together. So we're going to start with world events. We will end up with events within the church. That said, let's begin. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Gold and silver, precious stones, every kind of object, all the things which are rich and splendid have gone. And the merchants stand at a distance saying, Alas, for in one hour so great riches came to nothing. Revelation 18's prediction of an end time economic meltdown obviously involves world trade because it goes right on to say, Every shipmaster and any, um, as many as trade by sea stood at a distance, wailing, alas, in one hour she is made desolate. The Bible doesn't paint a pretty economic picture at the end of time, nor, as a matter of fact, does another prophetic source that I still happen to consider reliable, and that's an old-fashioned source called the Spirit of Prophecy. Ellen White put it this way, Money will soon depreciate in value very suddenly when the reality of eternal scenes opens to the senses of man. Obviously, a prediction made when the world is on the brink of eternity, human beings can begin to see through the fog of the future. They can see something out there that's endless, and money depreciates very suddenly in value. The Laffer curve changes. It goes vertical. It goes exponential. The economic and monetary system collapses, and money depreciates in value very suddenly. The technical term for which is what? Hyperinflation. There's another broad hint of hyperinflation echoed in Maranatha. That is one superb book. You ought to get it and read it till you wear it out and then buy a new one. Maranatha, chapter 173. The Lord has shown me that some of his children would fear when they see the price of food rising. And they would buy food and lay it by for the time of trouble. Now let's get a real clear focus on the word picture Ellen White is painting here. She's painting a picture of a world that is beginning to go bad. It isn't all the way there yet. We are not yet in the time of trouble. How do we know? Because God's people can still buy food. Revelation 13 has not yet come into reality, but there's enough out there. God's people can begin to see through the fog of the future. Shapes are emerging. They draw between the dots. Finally, one day they say, this is not good. This can't end well. Let's get rid of this worthless paper and get something we can actually use. And dad gets out his knife and cuts open the mattress. They take the money out and they buy food. But you're still far enough from the end of time, far enough from the time of trouble, 
that that food has time to rot. Because the very next statement she makes is then in the time of trouble, when they went to use their food, it had bread worms, was full of living creatures, and was not fit for use. See, the function of the time of trouble is not for us to demonstrate to heaven how well we can take care of ourselves. Function of the time of trouble, I think, is just to pull our claws out of a world we're very, very reluctant to turn loose of. So a broad hint of hyperinflation. You see the common theme, financial collapse, a collapse of the monetary system, and with that prophetic background in mind, now let's turn to the world we live in, and let's talk about the economy. Today, America owes $17 trillion. That's trillion with a T. And that probably would mean a little more to us if we start with a level that we can understand. So here in my hand, I have $1,000. That's 10 relatively new $100 bills. Doesn't look like much in today's economy. It isn't much, but there's 1000 bucks. A thousand handfuls like this would produce a million dollars. Now, if you wanted to put $100 bills into one of those file boxes that you get from a stationery store called a banker's box, you put records in those things, they're about so big. If you jam that thing full of $100 bills, you could pack in about $2.5 million if you really filled it up. So how much is a billion dollars? By the way, we're going in debt two and a half billion dollars every single day in America. How much is a billion dollars? Well, a billion dollars is a pretty good sized truck jammed full of those bankers boxes, each one of which is packed to the very gills with hundred dollar bills. So how much is a trillion dollars? Well, the easy answer is more than I got on me. But to picture a trillion dollars, picture banker's boxes, which are about 10 inches high, jammed with $100 bills, and you start loading them into a football stadium, you will completely fill up the playing field and dribble out onto the sidelines, completely fill a football field. You could fill the Rose Bowl or the Cotton Bowl, 10 inches deep with $100 bills, and that's a trillion dollars. Now, if you wanted to express that in dollar bills, you would pack that football stadium as high as an eight-story building. We have 17 football fields now filled with borrowed $100 bills. That is more than half of the stadiums in the entire National Football League. We're talking 83 feet deep dollar bills in MetLife Stadium, Cowboy Stadium, Mile High, Sun Life, Candlestick Park, Georgia Dome, Heinz Field, the Oakland Coliseum, Soldier Field, and Qualcomm Stadium in San Diego. And we still have seven more fields to go, filled 83 feet deep with borrowed dollar bills. And a lot of those are owed to whom? People's Republic of China. Now that is a game that can't end well. So what are we going to do? 
Well, aside from simply defaulting on our debt, which is global economic meltdown, there's Revelation 18. Aside from that choice, we have three choices we might employ. The first one is simply raise taxes. Deal with the deficit by raising taxes. That's one that a lot of politicians go for first. That'll work right up to the point where you discover that if you taxed all of the high income taxpayers in America at the rate of 100%, you could run the government only a relatively few short weeks. To get that working anywhere near possibility of success, you've got to tax everybody. Now the 47% who don't pay taxes suddenly discover what that's like, and it's about as much fun as sleeping on a cactus. The third problem that you encounter is by diverting that much money from the private into the public sector, now business doesn't have the extra cash it needs to buy new equipment, try new ideas, open new franchises and hire new people, and there goes your economic recovery locked up in a four-wheel lock screeching rubber smoking halt. So raising taxes may not solve the problem, which leads us on then to option number two. We just take our national visa card to the teller's window at the Bank of China or the Persian Gulf. That will work until, until what? We discover that we've reached a point where our surplus income can't even pay the interest on the national debt. And then one awful day, we go to the teller's window at the Bank of China and the teller politely says, ni hao ma, and we say, well, not so good. Uh, Uncle Sam needs a little more sugar. And the teller with a very, very forced smile says, awfully sorry, your credit card seems to have been declined. Now that can happen. Borrowing money could work until we find ourselves in a good hot fight over Asian sea lanes or Southeast Asian oil, and that could happen. And did you notice, not long ago, the People's Republic of China and the Russian Republic engaged in a joint military exercise. Those old Cold War allies have rediscovered each other, and they're recognizing it all may not be sweetness and light in the future. So borrowing money may not always work. Well, that leads us to option number three, and that looks like this. Now what I have here is the real thing. Those are real uncut dollar bills I bought from the Bureau of Engraving and Printing in Washington. We can start creating money. Governments have the power to do that. By the way, this is how we are now funding a relatively feeble economic recovery. We are creating money. The Federal Reserve is creating money. Warren Buffett said not long ago in an economic summit conference in uh, 2013 that if the Fed quits creating money, it will be the shot heard round the world. So get the picture. We're now walking a tightrope over a fiscal Niagara Falls. If we quit creating money, we could endanger a fragile global economic recovery, but the day we print one dollar too much, what happens? Then the dollar starts chasing a fixed number of goods, and there are too many dollars for the goods that are for sale in the marketplace. 
and you encounter something Germany encountered after World War I. Reichstag was looking at these war reparations of the victorious Western Allies imposed on defeated Germany. Their shattered economy simply could not produce the wealth needed to fund the kind of debts Germany had to pay. And the Reichstag said, well, the only hope we have is simply printing money. They did. Now, here's what happened. In 1919, $1 could buy you 12 German marks relatively decent rate of exchange. Two years later, the curve is starting to go upward. It isn't frightening yet, but it does attract your attention. Two years later, a dollar buys 263 marks. Now, somewhere between then and two years after that, when the dollar buys 4.6 million marks, the curve is getting so steep that dad says to mom, I don't like what I'm seeing. I'm going to get my knife out, open the mattress, let's trade this worthless paper in for food. That's what Ellen White foresees at the end of time. But Germany wasn't done yet. Just a year later, in 1924, $1 bought 4.2 trillion German marks. They got to the point where they only printed the money on one side of the paper. I looked for years, I finally found one of these things, a million mark note. German note printed back then. On the front it has printing, on the back there's nothing. It wasn't worth ink for both sides of the paper. Okay. So Germany encountered hyperinflation. Can that happen today? Well, let me give you Exhibit A. Brother McNeilis was kind enough to provide these for me. In my hand, I hold a handful of $100 trillion notes from the African nation of Zimbabwe. I have a quadrillion dollars in Zimbabwean money. Brother McNeilis told me when he bought it, he got these for about 15 cents. Why? Zimbabwe is a nation rich in resources, both natural resources and human talent. When they got their independence in 1980, the Zimbabwean dollar was worth more than a U.S. dollar. What went wrong? Well, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank came in with some just brilliant, wonkish suggestions that they called Structural Adjustment Program. That plus redistribution of wealth in Zimbabwe led very shortly to a catastrophic decline in their agricultural production. People began to starve and inflation went to several million percent. Got to the point where we have something happening like this. Now what happened to the Zimbabwean money system is worth our talking about for a moment. Zimbabwean money failed for three reasons. Number one, there was absolutely nothing to back it up. It's just paper. But wait a second. What's unpleasantly familiar about that? In 1922, this is what a U.S. $10 bill looked like. You notice it's printed in gold. There's a reason. It says, United States of America will pay to the bearer on demand $10 in gold coin. There was something to back it up. 
went off the gold standard, then we went to uh, what were called silver certificates. This one says that the United States will pay to the bearer on demand $5 in silver. Still something to back it up. Today's money says what? I owe you. <laughs> Zimbabwean money had nothing to back it up. That's reason number one it failed. It's unpleasantly reminiscent of what we face here. Point number two, Zimbabwe ruined their economy by printing money to finance a disastrous war in the Congo. But wait a second. That's unpleasantly familiar also, isn't it? We're printing money to finance war. Point number three is the people in Zimbabwe lost confidence in their money. Now, we aren't there yet. These things still work. Thank God they do. Don't look forward to the day when this stuff comes tumbling down because it'll be an awful tough time finishing the work of God with worthless money. Maybe there's a reason why Ellen said, White said, work while you can because there's a time coming when it's going to be really tough to get the job done. So hyperinflation is a frightening prospect. When that happens, if you can still afford to buy a meal at a restaurant, you pay for your meal when you order. You don't wait till you've eaten because the price will have gone up. Three ugly choices, raise taxes, borrow money, or print money. None of them lead to a good end game. But notice something, we're using all three right now. And how's that working out for us? First issue in end time events and prophecy is the economy. And the Apostle James doesn't give us much reassurance if we're expecting uh, to have endless wealth in this world. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded. And what I find fascinating about that is this stuff doesn't corrode. Gold especially is chemically almost inert. This stuff doesn't corrode. What James is describing is a time when the most established economic theories just don't work anymore, something really goes wrong. That's Revelation 18. Well, what did Jesus say? What was his economic advice? Put your money where moth and rust can't touch it. And that's what I love about ASI because the members here follow that program. Thank God there are people who still do. Issue number one, the economy, leads us to one I've never spoken of, to my recollection, in public before, but I think it's about time somebody did. And that is the secular drift and moral collapse of our society. Now, everywhere you look, from court decisions to legislative changes to the behavior of men running for public office, and it amazes me their long-suffering wives come along to say the seventh commandment isn't that big a deal everywhere you look even the presentation of the evening news in broadcasts that pass for news reporting but are really advocacy and I know what I'm talking about. I was a newscaster before I became a lawyer. Just take it from me, when you watch the news, you don't always get the news. So everywhere you look, the values you've always believed in seem to be going into the meat grinder. In the language you hear on the street, uh, I work in LA, I, I'm shocked to say that 
the language I hear even from ladies uh, in a law office is many times very little different from what I used to hear from sailors on the quarter deck of a warship. I'm reminded of the old gentleman who got on an elevator and he was of the old school. He was wearing a hat and a couple of young women got on. He took his hat off. There were ladies present. But the elevator just stopped at floor after floor after floor. Finally, one of the young women burst out, blankety, blankety, blank, this blankety, blank elevator. The old man didn't say anything. He just quietly put his hat back on his head. <laughs> what we see in our society doesn't reflect our values. I'm talking about traditional family, hard work, honesty, decent language, and common courtesy. More and more often, this unwelcome thought steals, forces its way into the conscious mind. This isn't the America I thought I knew. Something's going wrong. And it all brings to mind a prediction made by Jesus. As it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. Luke 17, New King James. Now, we might add there's something else they did, because where did Lot live? In a place called Sodom. And sad to say, the guys there had an obsession, and it wasn't with honesty, decency, hard work, or the traditional family. Their obsession was something else, and it was so intense that even when they were supernaturally struck blind, they still had only one thing on their minds, and it wasn't Lot's daughters. And there came a day when heaven just had enough. And three mighty beings disguised as common travelers stopped that memorable afternoon at the tent door of a man of faith called Abraham. And they said, we've just had all we can take. We're going down there. And in the book Lucifer Diary, I paint a, a little word picture of the view Abraham may have had the next morning from the Judean Heights looking out over the vale of Sodom and multiple towering, pillaring clouds any cloud that gets hot enough goes up like a column, and when it finally reaches a point where there's temperature equilibrium, it boils out into a mushroom cap, and Abraham saw something going on down there. He knew the cities were gone. And the question is, do we hear echoes of Sodom today? Uh, what about the traditional family, where kids once heard truths read each morning and evening by a mom and a dad from the Word of God? and went to church each Sunday and learned to work and treat elders with respect to say yes sir and no ma'am and count honest change at the cash register. Might a weary majority finally one day say yes, we do remember those days. Enough is enough, it's time to get America back. Now, I suggest we think very seriously about this. The secular drift of our society suggests that when, when hard times come, and they will, a frightened and fed up majority will suddenly remember that back in the good old days, when families were together and people were in church on Sunday, and you could get on an elevator without hearing young women cuss, things were better. 
And when a frightened majority finally rediscovers a need for old-fashioned morality, and the only hope of survival maybe seems to be a return to the good old days, can you imagine how angry people would be if a little minority refused to join the majority back to a legislatively enforced moral America over something as arbitrary as a day of worship. Great Controversy puts it this way, those who honor the Bible Sabbath will be denounced as enemies of law and order as breaking down the moral restraints of society, causing, causing what? Causing anarchy. I hate to say it, I don't look forward to this, but anarchy lies out there in our future. Daniel looked forward over the centuries at it. He says there's been nothing like it. In the whole history of the world, Daniel 12, 1 starts, there will be a time of trouble such as there never was since there was a nation. Just almost groping for words to describe it. A time where the rule is the rule of the gun, the rule of an angry majority, the rule of the strong over the weak. And God's people have only one hope of escape, and that's getting off this world. We're in a deep trough of secularism today, but when the storm comes, and it will come, failed liberalism could provoke a backlash. And I think it's a backlash probably never seen in our history, all of which now leads me to topic number three. World event topic number three, that's loss of liberty. It's pretty clearly a demonstrated historical truth that frightened people surrender liberty. Uh, they just throw it away. A frightened, frightened Germans after the collapse of the German monetary system put all of their fears and their dreams into a cauldron called Adolf Hitler. Yet good and scared, and liberty goes overboard like Jonah. Frightened people do that, and frightened governments do that, and sometimes ambitious governments do that. With that in mind, think about something. Every email, every tweet, every telephone call you make is on a party line. And I'm not talking just about the radio signal in your cell phone. We've now learned, it apparently is true, sad, to, sad but true, that the fiber optic cables that go under the oceans uh, aren't secure either. You might think they would be because there's miles of seawater on top of them. Apparently those are being monitored too. And as they say on TV infomercials, wait, there's more. You might think the secure way to communicate is by snail mail, but now it appears to be the case that every piece of mail that is sent, the cover of the envelope is photographed to determine who's sending and to whom those photographs are stored. So everything we do or say is observed and probably retained by equipment we barely understand and people we don't even know so that when Grandma calls little Johnny and says, Little Johnny, we are so lonesome to see you. We're looking forward to next summer when you come to visit us. You'll have a good time with us because we live in a big white house. 
Stop it right there. Those last two words guarantee that voice recognition software will divert that statement for re-examination. Why? Because grandmas use two words that sometimes are associated with national governmental administration. And now the latest thing I've heard, and it's, it's hard to feature, but it appears to be coming, is the use of domestic drones. And I'm not talking just about government. There's now talk about private industry buying and using domestic drones to study the behavior of people in the privacy of their backyard to see what might economically be more profitable. So you can't even find privacy in your backyard. Frightened governments and frightened people discard liberty. First time I ever spoke here in Orlando was 31 years ago, May, last uh, week of May, as I recall, 1982, and I was doing the evening meetings of the Florida camp meeting, and the conference president then was Elder Karuba, just a great guy, great Italian-American and a real fine church leader. And while I was here, uh, he taught me to speak Italian. I can still remember uh, how you say, I, how, how, how you say refrigerator in Italian, Elder Karuba told me is I sabaxa. Well, one night we were on the stage and I was conflicted. I had a couple of topics I could present, one of which was, the, uh, was end time issues and I asked Elder about it. He said, oh, let's do end time issues. Our people are always interested in that. Well, in 1982, our major problem was the Soviet Union with its 40,000 nukes and its 50,000 main battle tanks massed just beyond central Germany's Fulda Gap. And uh, between the people of God and a finished work was this huge iron obstacle called the Soviet Union. Born of Darwinism and the Marxist notion that a continually evolving human species ought logically to be able to create heaven on earth through humanistic socialism. Now let's be really careful with Darwinism. I was so refreshed and so blessed by Elder uh, Dr. Brand's presentation last night when he tells us that at Loma Linda they are offering graduate curricula and things like geology in a way whereby young Adventist students can still hang on to their faith. Thank the Lord for that. Sometimes we, uh, we make an indoor sport of putting down on places like Loma Linda. Well, I've been there recently and I'm telling the Holy Spirit's still there. So anyway, there was this notion of creating a heaven on earth through Dar uh, Marxism. Be careful with Darwinism. It is a steep slope. It's paved with Teflon and it leads you places. You don't even realize you're going till you're immersed in it. And one of them is the presupposition that the capstone of the evolutionary uh, triangle being the human race ought to be able to create a, uh, a paradise on earth. If only we could get rid of religion with its history of persecution and fratricidal war. Notice something, the first drafts of both the Communist Manifesto and Origin of Species, both of those, the first drafts were penned in guess what year? 1844. Now, whatever doubts we may indulge these days in postmodern Adventism as to the <laughs> relevance of 1844, 
There was no doubt whatever in Lucifer's mind. He knew exactly what was going on in heaven. He knew what was going to happen on earth, and he hit back, and he hit back hard. And both of those world-changing uh, volumes were penned as a first draft in 1844. So that by 1982, when communism's revolutionary, and may I add evolutionary, dream extended over half the globe, we were entitled to wonder how we're going to finish the work of God. Well, we didn't have long to wait, did we? Uh, just seven years later, we were reminded rather graphically there's still a king on the throne, and when heaven decides to offer God's people a major opportunity to finish the work and go home, mountains disappear, and the Soviet Union just disappeared. It's just gone. Hardly a tear shed. I remember one or two Politburo members on, on uh, the news were shedding a few tears, but that was it. Soviet Union just disappeared. And suddenly the world stood open. There was this huge hole in Lucifer's defensive line. And if ever, in my opinion, there was a signal for a soon coming advent, this was it. It was almost as if there was a peal of cosmic trumpets sounding the bugle call for charge. Now, in war, when, when the enemy line breaks, you don't stroll through that opening, you run through it. One thing you don't do in war is, in combat, is sit around admiring opportunity. Because on the other side, there's a frantic, energized enemy trying to plug that hole. And in the great controversy, we're not facing a human general capable of human mistakes. There's no fog of war for General Lucifer. He knows exactly what's going on. And when he gets hit, he counterattacks. And when he does so, it's with incredible fury. What was about to happen in the decade of the 1990s is astonishingly similar to an event at the start of the 20th century nearly a hundred years before, and I'm going to take a few moments of your time to talk about it. You'll soon understand why there's a parallelism here. The same issues are in play both times, turn of the 20th century, near the end of the 20th century. In 1900, as in 1990, the world suddenly stood mysteriously open, able, to be entered for the rapid finishing of God's work. Then, as in the 1990s, there was this sudden mysterious prosperity. Do you remember what happened to Wall Street in the 1990s? Took off like a rocket. The dot-com industry was so hot for a while that uh, law schools uh, were turning out lawyers who were sucked out into the dot-com industry the price of entering uh, law, new lawyers in the, in the legal market went up catastrophically high for a lot of firms simply because there was just so much demand for them. The economy took off red hot. And the same thing happened at the turn of the 20th century. I believe in 1900 Jesus was trying to return. I believe he intended to. Now that's not just supposition on my part. In the General Conference Bulletin, March 3, uh, uh, I should say March 30 of 1903, Ellen White said, If the people of God had preserved a living connection with him, if they had obeyed his word, they would today be in the heavenly Canaan. Now that's just one of a number of similar statements. The Lord may have been delayed, but don't blame heaven for it. He wanted to come a long time ago.
I believe in 1900, heaven was engineering an opportunity whereby that could happen. Heaven had already given the Adventist church the magnificent 1888 message. There's a lot of ink been spilled on 1888. I think it's a real simple concept. In my opinion, what was being given the church in 1888 was the idea put Jesus back into the center of everything we teach. And we have a wonderful aggregation of truths here. You're talking second coming, sanctuary, investigative judgment, Sabbath, spirit of prophecy, and this end time warning we're commissioned to give a world about to make a catastrophic mistake. Don't do it. Don't throw away liberty. That's called the mark of the beast. All of these things we have, they're powerful truths. You can preach them and you can convince people of them. But if you do so without emphasizing how Jesus is the very center of every one of those truths, all we're going to do is create biblically literate, prophetically aware, probably much more healthy sinners. You put Jesus in the center of every one of those, and I'm going to show you in just a few minutes how it fits into one of these. Put him in there, emphasize the centrality of Jesus. Then add to that the creative power of the Holy Spirit out of the morning week of creation, and you have a message that can stop human history cold. Just that simple. So heaven intended, I think, at the turn of the 20th century for the work to be finished quickly. Now, in 1981, I wrote a little book called Omega, and that book opened up on New Year's Day, 1900, where everywhere you looked, there was peace. You go almost anywhere on earth, and everywhere you looked, there was a wave of prosperity. One New York editor put it this way, if you couldn't make money last year, you just can't make money and give up on you. That was the case not only out in the world, but in the church. The brilliant Kellogg brothers, John Harvey Kellogg, the doctor, and his brother, Will Keith, ever heard of W.K. Kellogg? Those two men, following insights given in the spirit of prophecy, were taking both the health message and the dietary message to a pinnacle where there was so much wealth available you could have finished the work of God easily. Our great sanitarium at Battle Creek drew captains of industry, presidents, European royalty. And our health message was trumpeting ideas and concepts that epidemiologists would still be studying in wonder a century later. And for a fleeting moment, nothing seemed to stand in the way. The work of God could be finished. Now, that moment wouldn't last long. Just two years later, in 1902, the Russo-Japanese War would propel Japan into a great Pacific, mighty Pacific power. Twelve years after that, the catastrophe of World War I would fulfill Ellen White's prediction that soon millions would die and entire navies would be lost in the ocean. What she said made no sense when she said it. It made perfect sense in 1914. But just now, as New Year's Day dawned in 1900, there was still a little time for God's work to be finished. Nellen White shouted an appeal to the church. She says, work as you've never worked before soon. The way will be hedged on the right hand and on the left. You won't be able to safely travel. And in 192, she added one more warning. She said, watch out. Human beings are using their inventive powers to produce machinery to kill so powerful that without God's special protection, there's no safe place on earth. 
And in 1902, that prediction made sense to only two people on earth, one of which was that little lady with three years of education, the other of which was a German Jew by the name of Albert Einstein at the University of Zurich, who was within two years to offer the world a special theory of relativity. Moments of opportunity for God's work are moments of peril because Lucifer will counterattack. And in 1900 to 1902, that's exactly what he did. He counterattacked, but from a direction nobody expected. Not from outside the church, but rather from inside. And how did he do that? Well, he cleverly attacked the unique truths of our message. The sanctuary, the investigative judgment, and the spirit of prophecy. And his soldiers were not warriors from out there. They were people from within. I'm talking the leader of our medical work, some brilliant academic people, the intelligentsia. We lost Battle Creek College in that apostasy. And the attack went something like this. The, uh, the sanctuary? Get real. No one in the whole Christian theological community agrees with us. They don't agree with this idea of an investigative judgment. They see it for what it is, a face-saving device to hide the disappointment of 1844. Well, the only problem with that was that Ellen White had enthusiastically endorsed both concepts. So if you're going to attack those, you have to move on and attack the spirit of prophecy. And the attacks went something like this on her. Ellen White, bless her heart. She's a good woman. She means well. She writes nice devotional literature, but a prophet? No way. You know why? Because she's a plagiarist. That stuff was dredged up in 1902 by Kellogg, by Canwright, by other apostates. By the way, what is a good definition of plagiarism? It's dredging up something somebody wrote a long time ago, isn't it? So those who resurrect those theories would be what? Well, we'll go on. There was another point that was made. You know, you have to remember that Ellen White is no theologian. Well, I guess not. I guess neither was the Apostle John. He was only a fisherman. Some apostates like Canwright took the argument to the next logical step, the Sabbath. This separates us from our Christian brethren there's no reason for us to be separated. We need to rejoin the mainstream. It is time to modernize our beliefs. It's time to <laughs> progress. That was Lucifer's counterattack in the opportunity this church saw in 1900. Now, was it successful? Well, when the collision was over, we had lost the great medical institution in Battle Creek. I mean, it burned to the ground. And when it was rebuilt, contrary to the advice of Ellen White, what happened? We lost it to the entire denomination. Today, that magnificent building that Dr. Kellogg built stands ghost-like over Battle Creek, a reminder of what might have been of better days. Now it's owned not by the Adventist church, but by whom? By the federal government. General Services Administration, the last I knew, was storing records in it. Maybe that's where pictures of your last envelope are stored. 
We lost our great publishing house. Once it was the newest and best printing establishment in Michigan, we lost that publishing house. It burned to the ground as well because against Ellen White's advice, it had agreed to publish material by Dr. Kellogg that undermined foundational Adventist truths. We lost a whole galaxy of Adventist thought leaders. We lost the breakfast cereal industry to apostasy so that by 1914, just as World War I slammed the door on any chance of a quick finishing of God's work, Battle Creek, Michigan was a ghost town with little to remind that once it had held the headquarters of the Advent message. Now, why have I spent a few minutes talking about a hundred-year-old misfortune? Why? I'll explain it. There's a lesson here. In the midst of that apostasy, Ellen White penned a warning. She said, this apostasy we're in here in 1902-1904 is the alpha of deadly heresies. But she said something else is coming. Something else would follow it downstream in time. And to symbolize that, she went down 24 letters to the end of the Greek alphabet, grabbed the uh, letter omega. She said, omega is coming, and I tremble for our people. In other words, we would make the same mistake again. Now let's go back to the 1990s. Glory days, the Pax Americana, Soviet Union collapsed, and when challenged by an adventuresome dictator in Iraq, we took out the fourth largest army on earth in just 100 hours. And everywhere, people looked to America. And suddenly, there was this almost unexplainable surge of wealth. Remember the 1990s. There was so much money coming out of Wall Street that there was money enough even among God's people to finish the work of God. And Places where we once had hardly dared to distribute a Bible were suddenly wide open. I well remember the contrast. In 1984, Joellen and I visited the Soviet Union, and on Sabbath we went to the church there in central Moscow. And uh, we stood to sing, and the church there can't afford hymnals, so everybody brings their own. And a nice lady behind us offered her hymnal. Well, I could read Russian, so I did what passed for singing. It wasn't much, but, you know, I tried. While the music was going on, I'm thinking to myself, just maybe the Lord has provided the answer to a question I've been wondering about. See, I had brought into the Soviet Union a Russian-language version of Ministry of Healing, Jesus And I'm thinking, how do, I, how do I get this to a Russian person? How do I get it to the right person? And more importantly, how do I get it to anybody? Because in the congregation, there were agents from KGB, and they were watching. And as we're singing, it came to me, here's the answer. When I give the lady back her book, Ministry of Healing goes underneath it. I just hand it back, and nobody even in the balcony is going to be the wiser. Well, it would have worked, except the lady, in a moment of just awesome naivety, lifts it up, looks at the cover, her eyes get big as saucers, and she blows me a kiss. 
So now the, the secret's out. I was hassled in both Moscow and Leningrad by the KGB over that little incident, but we got out okay. I'll never forget how good it felt to look down from a, uh, from a, uh, a Russian uh, airliner and see Holland beneath us. Um, anyway, there, I was curious at this point. There was nothing left to lose. So I got to thinking, who is this lady that, that the Lord has enabled me to give this book to? And I finally turned, I, I thought to myself, could she be a doctor? So I turned around and whispered to her, Vivrach, are you a doctor? And she said, da, ja, vrach. Yes, she was. I'd given it to a doctor. Well, anyway, 10 years later, I was speaking in the Moscow Central Church, this time in the Russian Republic. And... Uh, from the pulpit. And in my, in my little talk, I used an illustration that I probably overused, but it's just so clear to me that I can't give up on it. And that's comparing the instrument panel on an airplane to the law of God. And I told the story of how when you fly into LA International and you drop down into that marine layer, you lose your horizon. You don't know which way is up. There is no way your body can tell you which way is up. It'll tell you all kinds of things. And if you believe them, you're gonna get dead. So your eyes and your mind go off of self and onto an external absolute better than your feelings. That's the instrument panel. That, to my way of thinking, is the law of God. It isn't the engine of salvation that puts you in the air, but it sure keeps you flying level. So when I got done with that, uh, I was greeting the people at the door of the Moscow church, and out came a major in the Russian Air Force. And uh, he and I were of equivalent rank in our, in our corresponding military systems. And he's a pilot. And he immediately grasped what I'm trying to say, what I'm thinking of. And I'm thinking to myself as I shake his hand, but for this message, in another time, in another lifetime, in an alternative universe, he and I have been looking at each other over gun sights. Instead, here we are, brothers in the Lord. And we exchanged a wonderful old-fashioned Russian bear hug in the door of the Moscow church. How things had changed. You could do things now, and to the brethren's credit, they saw the opportunity and rushed into it. Now, in Adventism, we have an indoor sport, sometimes uh, enjoyed, called second-guessing the brethren. But this time, the brethren had it right, didn't they? I mean, do you remember those, those uh, massive evangelistic efforts that went on? The church rushed into that vacuum, and so, thank God, did ASI. ASI members took advantage of that and went in there, and the gospel was preached in a place where just 10 years before you couldn't safely give away ministry of healing. And we have to ask ourselves the question that's going to be posed tomorrow afternoon when some of us on the panel try to address it, and that is, why are we still here? We should be home. That opening was so huge. We should have rushed through it. We should have gotten home. We didn't miss the opportunity of going into places we could never enter before. Something else must have gone wrong. We should be home today. I mean, beyond even the welcoming specter of the sea of glass. That should be behind us. That great welcome home supper should now be memories. We should this particular Earth Day be hard at work in the cosmos. I mean, do you realize that ASI's work 
doesn't end with the second coming. That's just the beginning. So get ready for it now, get in shape, because the real work begins when he comes. And I am convinced that God's plan is to scatter us across the limitless universe, telling and retelling. To awestruck beings, what it's like to be in rebellion and what it's like to be redeemed. And yet, oddly enough, here we still are. Beautiful place, Orlando's nice, but it's still got traffic lights and mosquitoes. <laughs> we ought to be home by now. Here we are beset with a crushing national debt that foretells hyperinflation and threatened by terrorists incomparably more dangerous than our Soviet neighbors ever were because our current enemies don't care if they live or die. Our Russian neighbors did, and there is a difference. A.D. 2013, 13 years into a century that never needed to happen, that shouldn't have happened, that I don't think was in heaven's plan for happening. And the question is, what went wrong? Well, I'll say more about that tomorrow if I get a chance, but let me give you some thoughts this morning. Let's go back to the 1990s and the lingering echo of 1900 and look at the parallels. In the 1990s, as in 1900, there was a suddenly wide open world, a catastrophically brief period of peace, a clear commission to the church, work while you can, because the night's coming when you won't be able to. There was a sudden out of the blue prosperity and something goes wrong. The opportunity is missed. And echoing down the corridor of decades is Ellen White's warning. Quote, we have now before us the alpha of this danger. The Omega will be of a most startling nature. Which leads us then to a question, if we have any reasonable curiosity left, and that is, what would the Omega challenge look like? Well, we fortunately have an answer. There's been a lot of speculation on that, a lot of attempts to explain it away and put it comfortably into the past. But Ellen White gave us an answer because with her own money on her own dime, she printed a little pamphlet called Special Testimonies Series B, number seven. And in that volume, she described a future challenge to God's church and it goes as follows, and I'm using her words. The enemy of souls has sought to bring in the supposition that a great reformation was to take place among Seventh-day Adventists, and this would consist in, one, giving up the doctrines which stand as the pillars of our faith. Dr. McNulty handled that beautifully yesterday in his seminar, showing where these pillar doctrines really stand, why they're so central, why they're essential. 
So point number one is we'll be tempted to just give them up. Give up the doctrines which stand as the pillars of our faith. Point number two fascinates me. She says engaging in a process of reorganization. Now what on earth does she mean by that? How do you reorganize something? Well, you can have a meeting of whatever governing body of the organization exists and you can vote to change it. That's one way of reorganizing. That's explicit. You can have explicit reorganization or you can have implicit reorganization that just kind of happens below the surface. You can have overt reorganization or covert reorganization. In other words, it can happen simply because various portions of an organization choose to act as if the organization really wasn't there or had no authority. Are you following me? Now let me give you my, my conviction this morning. This church, this Adventist church, is not a congregational collection of autonomous conferences and unions free to follow the church or ignore it at will. We are a world church and we ought to act like a world church. And when the general conference meets in formal session and takes action, we ought to speak with one voice. No matter what social agendas we may feel are meritorious, no matter how meritorious they may be, we are a world church. And Ellen White says, watch out. One of the elements of this future problem is reorganization, and I'm pointing out that can happen in obvious ways or subtle ways. Point number three. The principles of truth given to the remnant church would be discarded. Point number four, the fundamental principles that have sustained the work would be accounted as error. Notice three times in three different ways she hammers on this issue of the fundamental pillar truths of this church coming under attack. And that can be overt or covert. We can either attack it openly or we can live as if those principles didn't matter. And she says at the end of time, the spirit of prophecy would by some be held as of little account. We can do that by simply reading it and ignoring it in our lives. So point number four is the fundamental principles that have sustained the work would be accounted as error. Now we come to number five. Books of a new order would be written. I find that interesting because she pluralizes books. Now in Kellogg's era, one book did it. I've got a copy of his original Living Temple in my personal research library. That one book, most of which was just stunningly beautiful truth, which had just a few dozen pages of error in it, that stopped the church like a ship hitting an iceberg. In the latter apostasy, Ellen White says it's going to be pluralized. There will be a blizzard of these things. Books of a new order. Point number six, the Sabbath would be lightly regarded. Now let me stop there. 
If you lightly regard the Sabbath, what will you logically also lightly regard? Well, what's the Sabbath a memorial of? Creation. You get to thinking the Sabbath isn't that important. You're going to soon follow logically on to the idea that creation may not be that important. And after all, a lot of very well-educated people say it didn't happen that way. Little by little, subtle doubts would creep in even to the importance of the Sabbath, and I'm suggesting axiomatically to the biblical account of how we came to be here. And it would happen from within, just as it happened in the era of Dr. Kellogg. Inside God's church, let me say it again, this is a world church. We should speak with one voice. We should act like a world church. That includes every structure, every organizational structure with us, including, for example, our institutions of higher learning. Thank God for the courage of Elder Wilson at the last general conference session when on the issue of creation, he said, this is what we believe, this is the truth we believe, this is where we stand. So major changes would occur in our structure, our literature, our thinking. And now we're ready for point number seven. She said, and I quote, nothing would be allowed to stand in the way of the new movement. In other words, something that is intentional, engineered, designed, planned, and it has power behind it. Nothing's allowed to stand in the way of the new movement. A powerful, well-designed plan to mutate the work of God into something he never intended. And then Ellen White adds another warning. Just before the close of probation, she said, something will try to happen within the church. It'll be a false latter rain, a false Holy Spirit, manifested by a lot of excitement, a lot of emotionalism, a lot of movement, a lot of activity, and the glue that holds it together will be music just before the close of probation. But notice something. This future challenge can only happen if we collectively allow it. We are privileged to stand in defense of God's church and God's truth. And the welfare of his church is in our hands, which leads me to my close. I want to pose it as a question out of the day of Pentecost Men and brethren, what shall we do? Let me offer four suggestions. Number one, let's remember that if anything we ever believed is preached, believed and preached is true, if anything we ever said is true, then we are living in the great day of atonement. This is it. This is what the sanctuary in the desert pointed to. We are living on Yom Kippur, the last great act in heaven before the return of Jesus is going on now and has been for 169 years. And ladies and gentlemen, that is not rhetoric, that is reality. Or we have no reason for being here. We are living on the Day of Atonement, so how should we live? It leads me to suggestion number two. 
In the time of Israel, on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, God's people got clean. They cleaned their dwellings, cleaned their garments, cleaned their persons, and they cleaned their hearts. They stood outside the door of those little tent homes while the high priest went into Kodesh Kodeshim and did his work in the Holy of Holies. And they searched their hearts and they said, where am I outside the will of God? The Hebrew word for that is anah. It's a merciless self-introspection. You ransacked your heart looking for areas in which wrong still may somewhere be lurking. And David put it very clearly. He said, Lord, search my heart, search me and see if any secret thing be there. I am convinced the function of the Day of Atonement is to bring sin out of the recesses up to the conscious level. Sometimes that's discouraging and humbling because you do things or say things that uh, make you wonder if you're really as far enough along, uh, far in the Christian pathway as you thought you were. You're fine, the Holy Spirit is bringing to your conscious attention things you need to deal with. You get that sin out of the conscious level. Just say, I'd rather have Jesus than that's sin. That's simple. Just deal with it. And so Israel searched their hearts, cleaned their hearts. And then, number five, they waited, <laughs> waited at the doorways of those little cloth homes of theirs in the desert that symbolized how temporary their, their stay was. Their, they had a better destination. Their life was not the desert. They were headed home, and that's where we ought to be looking today. Everything we do, how we live, how we spend our money, how we spend our time and our attention should declare, this is temporary. We are headed home. Israel waited at the portals of their homes. May I suggest we wait at the portals of eternity. And that brings me to suggestion number three. We just wait. Wait while the high priest does his mysterious work in Hagia Hagian in the Holy of Holies. Um, while we wait, we have a precious truth known alone in Adventism. Nobody else in the whole Christian world preaches this, let alone understands it. It's unique to Adventism, and that is this. This is the Day of Atonement. Judgment is going on right now, and we don't have to fear it. Why? First of all, because Jesus is our judge. Amen. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto whom? Only he's been here. Only he knows that riptide pull of temptation. No one else in the universe understands it but him. Only he is fit to judge us. Father doesn't even try. But the news gets better. Not only is he our judge, he's what else? My little children, these things I write to you that you sin not. That's the Apostle John's version of what we ought to do with sin. Don't mess with it. That's the old classic Adventist ideal. Don't mess with sin. All it's going to do is hurt you. My little children, these things I write that ye sin not. And he doesn't say when we sin. He says if we sin, we have whom? Advocate. We have an advocate. What's an advocate? Advocate is defense counsel. Now think about that. Your judge 
is your defense attorney. Those two offices are fused. Same person does both. You're being judged by your defense lawyer. How are you going to lose a case like that? So as we wait, we just think about what Jesus is doing for us. And now I want to move on to suggestion number four. And that is, I think, we need to share the ASI spirit. I mean, what if the entire Adventist community had the experience and conviction that we saw last night up on the platform, story after story of people who are turning their livelihood into a platform for mission outreach? What if the entire church had that spirit? What if we treated our young people with the kind of respect they get at ASI and GYC? Instead of treating them as a temporary aberration that has to be entertained because the gospel isn't powerful enough for them. We uh, sometimes hear people say, oh, what we need to do is re uh, rephrase Adventism, reframe it to meet the young mind. And I think about that and I wonder, where were you uh, in history class? If you ever studied Adventist history, who started this church? There were some older guys like Captain Bates. There was an old man uh, by the name of Hiram Edson who was 38 years of age. By the way, one of the participants last night was a, uh, is a descendant of Hiram Edson, Christina Montero, who was up on the platform last night. But the majority of the pioneers of this message were young people. I'm talking James White, 22 years of age, Ellen Harmon, 16 turning 17, Annie Smith, 15, Uriah Smith, 12, and J.N. Andrews, 15 or 16 years of age, and there are more. This church was started by young people. Don't tell me it can't reach the young mind. That's where it came from. Amen. So as we conclude with my fourth suggestion, I just suggest we share the spirit of ASI. There's a mission field not only out there, but inside the church as well. I was going to give you four suggestions. I want to end with the fifth one. And that is, it's time to defend God's truth. If Ellen White was as correct about her prediction of an omega apostasy as she was about the causal link between tobacco and cancer, then there's a challenge out there in the future. It may be a whole lot nearer than we realize. When that happens, it is our privilege to defend the truth. And I want to close with words that were framed far better than I could begin to do. By Ellen White back in an earlier crisis, looking forward to one at the end of time. And she put it this way. To stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us to fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few. This will be our test. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. 
Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.